Skins US, however, is a hundred percent held back by America's complete inability to let go of their old-fashioned conservative antics. Because of excessive censorship that sits with the large majority of networks in the country, Skins US kind of ends up coming across as Skins Light. The characters can't even swear, the storylines can't be nearly as dark or heavy in nature, sex is a big no-no, and as a result, you are left with a show that implies rather than shows. Meaning, because of America's censorship, Skins US was forced to get rid of everything that made Skins Skins. It takes away all of the elements that made this show fascinating to audiences. If I remember correctly, Skins US was cancelled after one season, unsurprisingly due to a rapidly declining audience and a bunch of controversy because despite the fact that this show heavily censored the content of the original series, some conservative organizations still went after the show to try and censor it further because they thought it was too scandalous. The plot devolves into an overly convoluted mess where there ends up being several teen pregnancies and teen marriages and just a whole lot of conservative ideals being thrown at your face. Oh my god, it's so bad. I that's some bullshit. Skins US, however, is a hundred percent held back by America's complete inability to let go of their old-fashioned conservative antics. Because of excessive censorship that sits with a large majority of networks in the country, Skins US kind of ends up coming across as Skins Light. The characters can't even swear, the storylines can't be nearly as dark or heavy in nature, sex is a big no-no, and as a result, you are left with a show that implies rather than shows. Meaning, because of America's censorship, Skins US was forced to get rid of everything that made Skins Skins. It takes away all of the elements that made this show fascinating to audiences. If I remember correctly, Skins US was cancelled after one season, unsurprisingly due to a rapidly declining audience and a bunch of controversy because despite the fact that this show heavily censored the content of the original series, some conservative organizations still went after the show to try and censor it further because they thought it was too scandalous. The plot devolves into an overly convoluted mess where there ends up being several teen pregnancies and teen marriages and just a whole lot of conservative ideals being thrown at your face. Oh my god, it's so bad. I that's some bullshit. She was only here to be the insulting stereotype of the Eastern European woman that Eastern European women themselves have been trying to fight for a very long time. And then, as soon as they're done mocking it for the sake of wasting time because this show doesn't have a story and nothing ever fucking happens, they get rid of the character and bye-bye. Because they can't stop being ignorant assholes. And other countries are starting to talk about it as well. Like, it's a big deal. People are not happy happy about this storyline. That's some bullshit. Like, this isn't a show about politics or, you know, any heavy topic that can divide people. Like, there, there's no message here. It's just empty fluff and aesthetics about a white girl being white in Paris. There is no fucking reason for a show as simple as Emily in Paris to constantly find itself at odds with entire communities. There is no reason for it to continuously offend entire nations to the point where a government gets involved. I mean, for fuck's sake, Darren, it's not rocket science. Just stop going out of your way to humiliate foreign cultures for jokes. It's not that hard, man. You don't even have to do something. You just have to not do it. It's the easiest thing. That's some bullshit.
Tony Topaz. Okay. I've hinted at it several times before, and I knew I was gonna talk about her. She's one of the main reasons why I wanted to make a Riverdale video in the first place. But believe me when I say that I get no pleasure talking about Tony Topaz. It's actually quite frustrating to me seeing how degrading the treatment of that character has been. It's genuinely insulting, and I believe Tony Topaz is a character that will serve as a powerful example of how demeaning representation can be for any actor of color who is thrilled to be given an opportunity to provide said representation. While I think the character of Kevin perfectly embodies how harmful representation can be if not handled properly, I think Tony is the one who hammers in that point in the strongest way. So Tony, if you don't know, was introduced in season 2 as a potential love interest for Jughead. She's a member of the Southside Serpents, the local biker gang, and when she first showed up, people quite liked her, and so did I. Vanessa Morgan is really good in the role, and from the moment she arrives, she immediately gives Tony a pretty solid sense of charisma. Tony is a badass, she doesn't take shit from anybody. She's also a bit of a lone wolf, like Jughead. She's still young and is not too involved in the activities of the serpents, but there are sequences that hint at Tony being somewhat of a leader by nature, which was really interesting for the future of her character. There was so much potential there, Tony could have easily become one of the best characters on the show if treated properly. And then, Roberto decided to write her into a forced romance with Cheryl, and that's where everything went wrong. Lastly, did you always know that you're gonna turn Cheryl into an LGBTQ character? No, and I'm, no, I did not. And I'm gonna talk about that. Yeah. In season two, right around the time that Tony's first storyline ends, Cheryl and Tony become a couple. And this is where some of the most insulting writing in this show begins to happen. Now, full disclosure, this is gonna be a little hard for me to discuss without genuinely getting angry. I'm gonna do my best, but please bear with me. The regression of Tony as a character happens so fast and is so insanely demeaning, it actually blows my mind. To make it short, over the course of season two, Roberto turned Tony into Cheryl's pet. And no, I didn't say girlfriend, I said pet. And that's not hyperbole, I need you to know that I mean it. Tony goes from being this badass, independent, and also very human character with so many distinct personality traits, to being a silent background character at Cheryl's feet. Her personality disappears, her interesting dynamic with Jughead completely vanishes. You never see her hang out with the serpents anymore, even though they're like a family to her. Everything about Tony as a character is erased from that point on. All she ever does is follow Cheryl around and she stands next to her quietly while Cheryl does things or talks to people. She loses her entire identity. She barely even has lines in the show anymore. Now she's just Cheryl's submissive little pet and it's infuriating. She's in the show quite a lot. Vanessa Morgan is a series regular, but make no mistake, every single second of screen time given to Tony is about Cheryl. Tony doesn't have storylines. That would be too good for her. No, she's just here to be a pretty decoration in Cheryl's storylines. The white girl. And I'm not kidding, the most that happens to Tony is at some point in season 3 she tells Cheryl that she feels lonely because she's not with the serpents anymore, so Cheryl buys her a girl gang named the Pretty Poisons and she's like, here Tony, I bought you new friends and it's just, ugh. The Pretty Poisons are not even characters, they're just eye candy. They don't even have names, I'm pretty sure they never even have lines of dialogue, like they don't speak, they're literally 
only in scenes to stand behind Tony the same way Tony is only in scenes to stand behind Cheryl. And it sucks because the idea of Riverdale having an all-female gang could have been intriguing, but they're essentially relegated to being toys that Cheryl bought for her pet because she was bored. It's just so dehumanizing and it's even more frustrating because Roberto has proven again and again that he would not be treating a character like Tony this way if she had been white. And it seems like I'm not the only one thinking that. Vanessa Morgan herself seems to have a lot of strong feelings about how the writers treated her and her character. If you don't know, in June of 2020, Vanessa went on a rant on Twitter to express her frustration towards the portrayal of African Americans in media, and by the same occasion, the portrayal of Tony Topaz. Tired of how black people are portrayed in media. Tired of us being portrayed as thugs, dangerous, or angry, scary people. Tired of us also being used as sidekick, non-dimensional characters to our white leads, or only used in the ads for diversity but not actually in the show. It starts with the media. I'm not being quiet anymore. Later on, she even added in another tweet that not only is she the only black series regular on the show, she also is the one who is being paid the least out of the entire cast. And as you can probably guess, those tweets created quite a storm online and a lot of people got implicated. That's some bullshit. It's actually quite frustrating to me seeing how degrading the treatment of that character has been. It's genuinely insulting, and I believe Tony Topaz is a character that will serve as a powerful example of how demeaning representation can be for any actor of color who is thrilled to be given an opportunity to provide said representation. While I think the character of Kevin perfectly embodies how harmful representation can be if not handled properly, I think Tony is the one who hammers in that point in the strongest way. That's some bullshit. So Cheryl buys her a girl gang named the Pretty Poisons and she's like, here Tony, I bought you new friends. And it's just, ugh. The Pretty Poisons are not even characters. They're just eye candy. They don't even have names. I'm pretty sure they never even have lines of dialogue. Like they don't speak. They're literally in scenes to stand behind Tony the same way Tony is only in scenes to stand behind Cheryl. And it sucks because the idea of Riverdale having an all-female gang could have been intriguing, but they're essentially relegated to being toys that Cheryl bought for her pet because she was bored. It's just so dehumanizing, and it's even more frustrating because Roberto has proven again and again that he would not be treating a character like Tony this way if she had been white. That's some bullshit. Number nine, the representation is a prison writer. You mean to tell me it's more realistic to include some characters of color in my novel? How dare you aim to improve my writing while also broadening and respecting my readership? Don't you know you're shackling me? Destroying my creativity? Because nothing says creative quite like writing the same character over and over again. What do you mean art requires growth and learning? What do you mean progress is a natural part of any skill? I want to be a big baby forever. You can pry these bigoted cliches out of my cold dead hands. That's some bullshit. Number six. My goal is to read the next book series that shall not be named. I've been trying so hard to avoid talking about that book series 
written by that dumbass turf. But I can't make this video without addressing this topic because so many writers say this to me and it makes me shrivel up like a scrotum in the ocean. For the sake of this point, I'm going to refer to the series as Wizard Butthole. That's the nicest name I could think of. So you want to write the next Wizard Butthole. Let me ask you this. Can you name a single book series within the last 30 years that's as popular as Wizard Butthole? A series that not only spawned multiple movies, but endless merch, Halloween costumes, and an entire fucking amusement park? How many books can you name with an amusement park? I'm waiting. Look, the odds are you're not writing the next Wizard Butthole. And that's fine. No one wants more Wizard Butthole, and we certainly don't want more authors of Wizard Butthole. Maybe focus on crafting a story that is special and meaningful to you, rather than replicating the fame of someone else. Besides, in case you've been living under a rock, the author of Wizard Butthole isn't exactly loved. She alienated a significant portion of her audience. I'm not even naming her because so many people find her enraging. Do you really want that? I don't think so. That's some bullshit. And on a related note, we have number five. Diversity in world building is realistic world building. A lot of people get bent out of shape about the concept of diversity in fiction which I honestly find really weird. We all want to see ourselves in stories. What's wrong with that? Why is that so hard to grasp? And usually the people who say, I don't care if I see myself in books, are the people who already have a ton of representation. So of course you don't care. You don't know what it feels like to be treated as if you don't exist. So here's the deal, folks. If you want to tell realistic stories that appeal to a wide audience, diversity is a must. Remember, society isn't a monolith. It's not realistic that your characters all look the same, have the same sexuality, or the same physical and mental capabilities. And no, your book is not diverse just because you included humans and fairies. Additionally, if you nix diversity in your world building, you don't get to act like your hands are tied. I really wanted to include a more diverse cast. It just turns out that this particular kingdom is a Caucasian kingdom. What do you mean it turns out? You are in complete control of your world building. You chose to make your kingdom like this. Why is that? If this question makes you defensive, then you've learned something about yourself. If you're making excuses to avoid writing people with a different skin color or body type or sexual orientation than you, then it might be time to do some soul searching and figure out why something as simple as melanin and hormones makes you uncomfortable. That's some bullshit. Number seven, my writing doesn't cater to the PC police. In other words, I wanna write racial slurs and you can't stop me. Listen, regular people don't care about the PC police. And that's for one obvious reason. They're not bigots. But Jenna, the woke crowd is trying to stifle my artistic expression. That's a load of bullshit and you know it. Some of the most popular books in recent history are about child murder, societally enforced rape, and graphic dismemberment of genitals. Nothing about fiction is PC, and most of the time that's the point. Literally no one is repressing your art. What happened is, your art told on you. You released a garbage story, people noticed, and now you're shit in your diaper. That's some bullshit. And number five, whatever you do, don't punch down. For those who are out of the loop, punching down means making jokes at the expense of groups of people who have less power, especially if you're in a more powerful position. A few obvious examples would be racist, sexist, and homophobic jokes. If you do this, you're being a bully, and most people don't like bullies. They think they're shitty. But Jenna, some of my characters are bullies. Punching down is what they do. That's a valid point. 
Some of my characters are bullies too. In my manuscript, I've got a scene where three douchebags are sitting around making a bunch of sexist jokes. But here's the thing. This scene isn't supposed to be funny. The point is to showcase how shitty these guys are. They may be laughing at the jokes, but my betas aren't laughing along with them. If you've got a similar situation in your book, but your intention is to make the reader laugh, maybe rethink your strategy. Honestly, if the only way you can be funny is to shit on other people, you're probably just not funny. That's some bullshit. Number six, when the monsters are humans. People suck, am I right? As much as I love monsters being monsters, I also equally love when the monsters who are typically villainized are, for lack of a better term, the good guys, and human beings end up being the assholes of the story. Because let's be real, it checks out. Human beings have enslaved one another. Human beings have created arbitrary standards of bigotry. Human beings have destroyed the entire planet that they live on, and for some reason, we're the good guy? I don't think so. I think it's really smart when writers use monsters to explore the monstrous behaviors of humankind. It's creative and clever, and I'm here for it. That's some bullshit. Number one, outlines are a godsend. But Jenna, all real writers write by the seat of their pants. Well, then it looks like millions of successful writers aren't real writers because lots of us use outlines. Like a lot of writers, I began my debut super quickly. I was so excited to write it, I just dove right in. I rambled, I went on tangents, I invented characters that didn't need to exist. And without an outline, I wrote myself into a corner. I reached chapter four and didn't know how to proceed, and I ended up with the worst case of writer's block I ever had for four months. After weeks and weeks of slamming my head against the wall, I finally bit the bullet and wrote an outline. I was able to locate all of my problem areas, find the source of my issues, and get my novel back on track. I also had to delete about 75% of those first four chapters. All those rewrites and those four months of nothing could have been avoided if I'd started the process with an outline or if I at least tried outlining sooner. That's some bullshit. Number five. Sensitivity readers exist. A sensitivity reader is someone who reads through your manuscript and points out any accidental cultural inaccuracies or offensive language. Basically, it's their job to make sure you didn't accidentally write something bigoted. But Jenna, I don't need a sensitivity reader. I'm woke. This may shock you, but even woke people don't know everything about every single marginalized community. You may be well-intentioned, but everyone fucks up from time to time, so you might as well enlist some help. When I wrote my debut novel, I compared skin color to food because at the time I didn't know that it was offensive. A sensitivity reader could have helped me learn I was making a mistake. No matter how open-minded you are, we're not infallible, and hiring a sensitivity reader can make all the difference. That's some bullshit. I know it hurts, but your readers will thank you. Number nine, thoroughly vet your editors. I hired my very first editor based off their reputation. They had worked on some very famous New York Times bestsellers that had even gotten movie deals, so I thought, hey, this guy's legit. It didn't matter that his rate was much higher than the average or that his website had barely any information on it because, hey, he was a big deal and that's all that matters, right? Wrong. The editor didn't end up providing the type of edit I had requested and a lot of his suggestions were misogynistic. He basically wanted me to make the male love interest the hero and the heroine the damsel in distress. And anytime the heroine was assertive or any of the female characters behaved in an unladylike manner, he wanted me to rewrite the scene and have them behave as passive and docile. Long story short, I had a really rough experience which could have been avoided if I had thoroughly vetted my editor. Ask for recommendations, look up their rates, 
read positive reviews, and of course, check their genre specialty. Just because someone sounds good doesn't mean they're the right editor for you. That's some bullshit. Additionally, if it wasn't obvious, this entire video is going to be filled with triggers. I will be talking about bigotry, sexism, homophobia, sexual assault, TERFs, ableism, I could go on. If this is triggering for you, I completely understand. Maybe skip this video or save it for a time when you're in a better headspace. That's some bullshit. Number one, bury your gaze. The bury your gaze trope is when LGBTQ plus characters are seen as more expendable than straight characters. Overall, queer characters are more likely to die than straight characters in media. Often they're the only characters to die in the story and quite often it's a direct result of their queer Obviously this is problematic because queer people throughout history have been killed for being queer, so perpetuating this system of punishment in your fiction is incredibly harmful. Now some people hear this and think, what the fuck? Who am I allowed to kill then? Which seems really weird out of context. Fiction, particularly speculative fiction, often includes copious amounts of murder, but you can do this without perpetuating harmful tropes. Say you have a cast of 10 characters, nine of them are straight, and one of them is gay. If you only kill the gay character, that sends a very specific message, don't you think? Even if you were to kill a straight character alongside of them, it doesn't matter because you literally killed off your entire queer representation. But say you have a cast of 10 characters and five of them are straight, whereas five of them are queer. If you were to then kill one gay character and one straight character, it sends a completely different message. There are still plenty of gay characters living and thriving, plus you treated your straight cast in the same fashion. That's some bullshit. Number two, dubious consent. The character said no, but their eyes said yes. The character resisted, but they ultimately enjoyed it. The character told them to stop, but they fell victim to seduction. Dubious consent is not sexy, it just makes the scene gross and uncomfortable. If that's what you're going for, then you nailed it. But if you want to create a romantic saucy scene, then this is absolutely not the way to go. Sexual assault is a huge problem for people of all genders, and because of the way it's regarded, a lot of sexual assault survivors don't feel comfortable speaking up or going to the police. Writing dubious consent as desirable only further perpetuates this very unhealthy narrative. It's triggering for survivors to read, and it normalizes a really fucked up idea of what sex is supposed to be like. Remember writers, arousal is not consent. That's some bullshit. Number three, the token black character and the black character dies first. I put these two together because they come down to a common denominator. These characters are included so the writer can say, here you go, I did it, I wrote a black character. Where are my diversity points? The token black character is a lone black character among a sea of white folks. They don't have many lines, they don't contribute much to the story, and if they do, it's just to motivate the MC. The black character dies first is another throwaway character that only exists to be the first fatality. In both of these situations, the character only exists so the writer has proof that someone who wasn't white exists in the book. Except in the first example, that someone has zero agency 
agency. And in the second example, that someone is just cannon fodder. This is problematic because it's dehumanizing. Writers are relegating people of color into these roles because they don't know what else to do with them. If you are shoehorning in a character of color and you don't know how to write them as a multi-dimensional human being, then this is probably a good time for introspection and education. It shouldn't be hard to humanize a character who's literally a human being. That's some bullshit. Number four, fridging a woman. To fridge a woman means to kill a female character, usually a wife or a girlfriend, in order to motivate a male character or advance his hero journey. Now, plenty of characters are killed to advance a plot, but fridging a woman is a wee bit different. The female character is reduced to a plot device. Her sole purpose is to die a painful death so the male character can become a hero. See? Her death was totally worth it. This trope is problematic because it reinforces misogynistic stereotypes that exist in our world today. A woman's duty is to fuel and motivate men, and ultimately, they're disposable. This is a mindset that has gotten women abused, subjugated, and murdered for centuries. Perpetuating it in fiction isn't gonna help us at all. So how do you avoid this trope? Maybe don't kill a girlfriend or a wife in order to advance a man's plot. That sounds like an obvious solution. If you do have to kill a female character, give her an actual character. If you can't, maybe don't write women at all. That's some bullshit. Number five, inspiration porn. Inspiration porn refers to a disabled or neurodivergent character who exists to inspire the reader. Wow, look how challenging their existence is. Don't their struggles make you appreciate your life? The problem with inspiration porn is once again, it's dehumanizing. Disabled people are regular normal people living regular normal lives. This may shock you, but my fiance is disabled and he shits and pisses like everyone else. This may shock you, but I'm neurodivergent and look at me. Don't I make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside? Look, we're just trying to live our lives. We do not exist to inspire you. We exist to better ourselves. Avoiding this trope like all the others is pretty easy to do. Just write these characters as multi-dimensional human beings with diverse traits like everyone else. Last time I checked, Cliff wasn't defined by his cane. That's some bullshit. Number six, the dead trans character. Are they a sex worker? I have a feeling they're a sex worker. I read a lot of books and watch a lot of TV, and typically when there's a trans character present, they die. And nine times out of ten, they're a sex worker. No shade to sex workers, but depicting an entire group of people solely in this light, especially a light that's already unfairly judged, just isn't accurate. Sex work is real work, but we'll save that topic for another day. My point is, avoiding this trope comes down to just acknowledging the fact that people are not a monolith. The dead trans sex worker is problematic because it paints all trans people with a single brush. They're almost always sex workers out of necessity, not by choice, and they die in a horrific fashion. You can represent trans people in your book in another way. Literally any other way. They could be alive for starters. And maybe you can consider them being, I don't know, the best friend, the mentor, the girl next door, or the hero. Just a thought. You do you. That's some bullshit. Number seven, sexual assault made me stronger. <gasps> I know you're all thinking about Game of Thrones. Poor Sophie Turner was done dirty with those lines. But this is a trend that's been going on for eons and it's almost always perpetuated by male writers. Male writers. 
Stop it! I've critiqued these stories myself. The femme fatale finally breaks down and shares her story, revealing that she was gang raped in her past, and that's why she's the badass she is today. Someone please feed these writers to sharks, I beg you. First of all, yes, sexual assault is a widespread problem and it affects a lot of women. But turning it into a phoenix story is offensive. It's like turning dysentery into a weight loss solution. Yeah, I nearly died, but look at my summer bod. Women can be badass without being violated. Women can be strong, tough, determined, or any other assertive trait without first being demeaned by a man. You don't have to work sexual assault into a backstory. This is not the only way to toughen up a woman. Women are already pretty tough to begin with. That's some bullshit. Shit. Number eight, the mentally ill villain. But Jenna, I can't write a mentally ill villain? I don't know, can you? One in seven people in the world have a diagnosed mental illness, which doesn't even touch on the people that have undiagnosed mental illnesses. The point is it's extremely common, which means it's very likely that some of your characters have mental illnesses as well. But if your only mentally ill character is the villain, you can kind of sort of see how that's a problem. There's a huge stigma against mental illness. It prevents people from being accepted by society and from seeking and receiving help. Demonize people who are struggling to receive medical attention is a pretty shitty thing to do. Now, like most of the points on this list, there is a balance. If you have a buttload of evildoers in your novel, adding one mentally ill villain probably isn't a big deal. But that's assuming you also have mentally ill heroes, which honestly shouldn't be hard to do. Anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD. There are so many mental illnesses that are extremely common and should should be really easy to input into your cast of characters. I'm sure you can think of some really popular heroes who fit those mental illness descriptions. That's some bullshit. Number nine, the romanticized predator. This kind of goes hand in hand with dubious consent. Once again, we're looking at sexual assault being romanticized, but this time it's the predator who's getting the rose-colored glasses treatment. Usually the predator is male and his predatory behavior is being labeled as dominant, strong, and and desirable. First of all, naturally dominant people do not need to force others to obey them. That is the opposite of strength. Forcing someone to be intimate with you, first of all, isn't intimacy, and second of all, it's an act to try and claim power that you don't naturally have. Second, this is once again painting extremely toxic behavior as positive, which has a profoundly negative impact on the real world. I have lost count of the number of people who have told me that they ended up in abusive relationships because their only examples of romance were the toxic books that they were reading. Remember, people are impressionable. They absorb what they read. Telling your audience that assault is desirable will inevitably result in real life damage. That's some bullshit. And last but certainly not least, number 10, better off dead. This is a trope when someone is neurodivergent or disabled and the reader is led to believe that they are better off dead. Their life is not worth living because it's shallow and lackluster. They're not able to do what normal people do and thus death would be mercy. First of all, how fucking dare you? Second of all, do you know how many disabled people read these books and then learn exactly what you think of them? Now let me clear the air here. Obviously, sometimes there are situations where someone is suffering in immense physical pain due to some kind of chronic 
chronic illness or disease, and maybe in that case they would see death as mercy. Additionally, suicidal inclinations are a problem for all people, disabled or otherwise. But these are situations that need to be handled with grace and care, not as inspiration fodder. I've seen this trope used for autistic people, blind people, people who can't walk, and the message it sends is deeply hurtful and invalidating. Yes, many disabilities are challenging, but you can write that without painting the character as Old Yeller. Having two perfectly functional legs does not make a life worth living. That's some bullshit. Number two, she breasted boobily to the stairs and titted downwards. This line is often used to describe male authors who over-sexualize and objectify their female characters. You can usually spot this right away because the author will start talking about the female character's genitals when they have absolutely no relation to the scene. Genitals usually aren't relevant unless someone's diddling them. For example, I once read a male author describe a teenaged female character's hard nipples poking through her shirt while she worked out. I've read male authors describe ovaries tingling, sentient tits, and vaginas that double as a slip and slide. And this shit will be happening while the character is at work or school. Nothing remotely sexual is going on. But the reader just had to know that the woman's breasts sighed with relief, because that's totally a thing tits do. As much as I love female rep, if you can't write a woman without objectifying her, don't write women. At all. That's some bullshit. Number three, the quirky, relatable loser. This used to be a very gendered trope. The average Joe with no redeeming qualities will snag the hot girl by the end of the book. But over the years, this trope has become approachable to all genders. And I hate it. I once read a book where the female main character attends a black tie event wearing a Halloween costume. We the reader are supposed to see this as playful and goofy as opposed to tacky and sophomoric. Writers, I promise you, you can make your characters relatable without making them total dumpster fires. This is especially relevant if there's any kind of romance in the novel, and there usually is if there's a quirky, relatable loser in the mix. You have to give them some redeeming qualities, otherwise, why is the love interest falling for them. They don't have to be hot, but can they be kind? Successful? Can they have integrity or any common sense? Why is common sense always missing in these characters? I love an everyman as much as the next guy, but I'm not going to ship the human embodiment of perfection with a lemon. That's some bullshit. Number 12 is going to be a little bit of a controversial one, but that is the complete lack of diversity. Our world is diverse and our books should be as well, with a few caveats and we will get to that in a second. I would say in general, publishers are really looking for diverse books and diverse stories in 2019. Now, the caveat here is this kind of depends on when your story takes place. If you're writing a historical fiction that takes place in medieval Europe, your cast of characters are going to be primarily white and that's okay. Okay, that's what you would expect of this particular setting. However, if you're writing an epic fantasy in some fantastical world or a contemporary story taking place in New York City, the world really should be diverse. The world should reflect more than one type of culture or person or ethnicity or sexual orientation. The world is diverse and I think it is really good to represent that in fiction. I think to some extent all readers really desire to see themselves in books. They want to see people like them doing wonderful and amazing things and feel like they can do the same as well. The world is diverse and your story should be as well, in my opinion. 
That's some bullshit. Number 13 goes along with number 12, but that is disrespectful representation of diversity. If you're writing a story about a group of people that you yourself are not from or you yourself do not identify as, you really need to do your research, period. Be respectful and avoid stereotypes as these can be very harmful. And even if you are doing a story in like a fantasy setting, it's still good to be aware if you're going to be pulling from certain cultures, be aware of what values those cultures have Again, avoid stereotypes. Always, always be respectful of anybody, but particularly of diversity in your writing. That's some bullshit. Number four, this isn't your story to tell. For this one, you're probably gonna be hinting at some problematic issues in the manuscript itself. I know a lot of people don't like to hear this and it's a controversial thing to say, but sometimes a certain story is simply not your story to tell. If you're writing a contemporary story from a culture or identity, etc., that you yourself are not from, probably is not your story to tell. There's a difference between writing a story diversely to include diverse characters versus writing just for the sake of diversity. In general, be careful writing really harmful stereotypes. I think a really easy example of this and something that I see a lot is when there is an author from the opposite gender writing sexist stereotypes about the gender they themselves are not. That's some bullshit.